This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. you please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. We'll be looking at Acts 3. We'll be looking at the entirety of that chapter, and we will actually continue on and look at the first four verses of Acts chapter 4 also. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. Fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Sorry. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why do you look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did did it in ignorance, as also did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, 
Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would prepare our hearts to receive it, receive the truth in it, the truth of your word, and the truth that the time for ignorance is at an end, but the time of repentance has come. Pray that if there are any here who have not repented, that they would be drawn by your Holy Spirit to do so. And for those who belong to Christ, that they would be faithful to take the message of Christ wherever it has not been heard. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the church in our current day seems to have in many ways been conquered by politeness. Now, what do I mean? Well, it seems like most Christians in most places and most churches and church leaders have functionally adopted the idea that the most important thing about being a Christian and being Christ's church is being winsome and non-offensive and agreeable. There are many persons and movements and groups within the church that seem to make it their task whenever the winds of the world are blowing a certain direction to try to convince the church and her members to put their sails up and catch that wind and follow wherever it blows, wherever the spirit of the age is leaving or is leading in the name of witness and mission and things of the sort. And people will often say that this sort of politeness and winsomeness is what Jesus and his apostles demonstrated. Now, it's generally true, as far as it goes, that Jesus and his apostles were not particularly rude or braggadocious, but they were at times quite confrontational. It was Jesus who at one point called the Pharisees a brood of vipers in case you weren't sure you don't want to be part of a brood of vipers. It was also Jesus who at times liked to go into the temple and flip tables over and drive out the money changers because they were defiling a place where God was to be worshipped. And these things were right and true and not sinful. Jesus was without sin and these were the things that he was doing. And yet it would be difficult to classify these actions as polite or winsome. In our day, we are being fed, we are being sold many lies and perversions by the world. And 
There are those who live within the world and under its influence who are more than happy to do the world's bidding within the church. One of our sister denominations has for years been entangled in a controversy over whether or not it is permissible to identify as a homosexual and not only remain in the church, but serve as an officer or even a minister. At one of that denomination's general assemblies, for instance, a pastor made a clear and biblical presentation against the promotion of these ideas and the organizations that were doing them, and he was attacked and a protest was filed because his language was intemperate. They went after the tone and procedure because they had nothing to do with his arguments, and this sort of thing happens in our day all the time. And yet, as we looked last week at Peter's Pentecost sermon, we saw something there that challenges this modern emphasis on missional politeness and winsomeness and keeping people comfortable. In that sermon, Peter repeatedly told the crowd that they killed Jesus. Because they did. He did not seek to mitigate the law's convicting effects in the interest of gospel proclamation, because that's not how it's supposed to be. The gospel is to be presented with the law. The law reveals sin. The law reveals the need for deliverance so that the gospel offers the way of salvation. And that is what Peter and the apostles model for us. And as we continue in Acts, we will see over the next couple of chapters another episode which demonstrates a set of priorities and actions quite different from what many in the church in our day pursue as it engages the, the world and the hostility in it. It's not particularly winsome or polite, but it is right and it is true, and it glorifies God and brings people to the knowledge of the truth. We see the apostles stand boldly and firmly on the truth in the face of opposition from the world. And this episode begins with this miraculous healing at the temple. And so we will look at that and the immediate fallout from it today in four points. First, there is a cure in verses 1 through 10. By the power of God through Peter and John, a crippled beggar is healed from a lifelong affliction. But then second, there is a charge in verses 11 through 15. Peter, just as he did before, levels an accusation concerning Christ against that crowd in Jerusalem. Third, there is a call in verses 16 through 26. The point of bringing this accusation is so that people might repent and be delivered from their sins. And fourth, there is a conflict in the first four verses of chapter 4. Peter and John's boldness land them in trouble with the authorities. So cure, charge, call, and conflict, those are our points for today. First, we look at the cure in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3. So we see in the opening of chapter 3 that Peter and John went to the temple to pray at the ninth hour of the day. This would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon by the way that we keep time now. Now, this was an important time because it was the time of the evening sacrifices. 
in Judaism, there were sacrifices offered each morning, there were sacrifices offered each evening, and the hours where these were done were kept by the people as hours of prayer, typically. I mentioned this before, but we see it again here, that for a time, the disciples of Jesus will continue to observe Jewish rituals and customs. This will not always be the case, though. As the Gentiles begin to be grafted into the church, to use the language of Romans 11, like tree branches that are grafted onto a tree from outside, there will be a lot of questions and controversies in the church about this, about the continuing observance of Judaism. What we're seeing here in Acts is a bit of a unique overlapping period from when Jesus came to when Judaism is judged fully and finally for its rejection of Jesus in 70 AD when the temple is destroyed and it has never been rebuilt since. As time goes on, more clear revelation by the Holy Spirit will establish that the continued observance of Judaism is not necessary for Christians. If you've been joining us on Wednesday nights, we've been going through the book of Galatians, which makes this very clear. We'll see this elsewhere in Acts. We'll see, for instance, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, which is wrestling with this question of those who insist on Jewish, yeah, on Jewish ceremonial observances for the church. There is coming a clean break from Judaism, but we're not there yet. And so the Christians in Jerusalem in this first church they are believing and they are worshiping as Christians, but they are also continuing in the customs of Judaism, such as this time of prayer at the evening sacrifice. So it is on the way to the temple for this evening prayer that Peter and John encounter this lame beggar at the beautiful gate. Now, it's not certain exactly which gate of the temple this was, but given its name, it was likely a very important and prominent one. It also would have been one that would have received a lot of foot traffic. It was a strategic move for this blind beggar, for this lame beggar to be there because it was an area where people were and they were going to worship God, and so they probably felt generous as they were doing so. As far as this act of begging in the first century, if one was disabled. It wasn't like now where there's insurance and social safety nets and things for people who are disabled. Those who were disabled had to make their living by begging. And so that's what this man would do. Day in, day out, he would have to be carried to this gate. He wasn't able to walk there himself, but he had to beg for his living. And he'd been doing it for a long time. We read that he had been lame from his mother's womb, and it comes up later in the text that he was over 40 years old. And again, with a severe disability, he couldn't even walk. He had to be carried to the gate to do his begging. So Peter and John pass this man, and predictably he asks them for some alms, for some money. Now, Peter at this moment seems to be moved by the Holy Spirit into taking an unusual action. He has no money to give the man, but he demands his attention. He says, look at us. And the beggar at this point probably thinks that it's payday. But then Peter breaks the seemingly bad news. He says, silver and gold I do not have. 
You could probably imagine that beggar having some immediate disappointment or frustration. You have no money. Why are you wasting my time? But Peter continues. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now this might have been initially a perplexing request for this beggar. What do you mean rise up and walk? I'm over 40 years old and I've never been able to do that in my whole life. But he seems willing to go along. He seems willing to take a step of faith because Peter helps him up and he is helped up. And then we read that as he does, immediately his feet and ankles receive strength. Whatever deformity or injury had prevented him from walking his whole life, it was immediately taken away in Jesus' name. Not only could he walk, but even supernaturally, right out of the gate, he knew how to leap and jump around, and he starts even doing that. And now given that this man was a daily fixture at this prominent public gate, people noticed. People start to ask among themselves, hey, isn't that the guy who, you know, used to, was sitting at the gate begging money just a little bit ago? And so this gets attention. We see that the people were filled with wonder. So what happens in response to this miracle? This brings us to our next point. After the cure, we come to the charge in verses 11 through 15. So we see that this man held on to Peter and John. He's drawn all this attention, but he is bringing this attention now upon Peter and John who healed him through the power of Christ. So what does Peter do? Well, again, the spirit leading him, Peter has an immediate reaction and he begins to preach. Now, the first thing he does is address why and how this miracle occurred. As we saw in the ministry of Jesus when we went through John's gospel, these healings always got a lot of attention and interest. In a day where medicine couldn't do a whole lot for people, someone who could heal, and particularly someone who could heal congenital and permanent conditions like this man had, that was going to get a lot of attention, and other people were going to want that. So Peter is quick to turn the attention and glory that he might have received for himself or the attention because of the healing, and he turns it to God. Particularly, he turns that attention to Christ. But this is where we begin to see, dare I say, Peter's impoliteness. He starts talking about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of his and their fathers. But then he turns to his servant, Jesus. And immediately, again, as he did before in the Pentecost sermon, levels an accusation against the crowd. Whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. So Peter is recalling the time of Jesus' trial. A trial that this crowd had very had themselves participated in. It was the same or at least overlapped significantly with the same crowd that had been there and asked Pilate to release Barabbas to them instead of Jesus. Peter is going right and directly and personally after the pressing sin of that crowd and of that city and of that people. 
Now, Peter does this, even as that night of Jesus' trial, as you might recall, was not Peter's own finest hour. What did Peter do that night? Well, he too denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. He's not sparing the crowd from accusation, but in referencing these events, he's also not sparing himself. He's not accusing them of sin as one who himself had no sin. He had sin that was in fact quite similar, but the difference is that Peter now knew that his sins were forgiven in Christ and that others must hear the truth of their sin and that salvation as well. There is a tendency in our day to lob all kinds of charges of hypocrisy against the church because people in the church sin. And yes, as long as any of us continue to live in this fallen and sinful world, we will continue to struggle with sin. But the sin of the weak vessels that Christ uses to build his church, despite the objections of scoffers and mockers, actually doesn't really matter that much. It's irrelevant. Because Christ alone saves. People need to hear that, and they need to repent, and they need to believe. And when they raise hypocrisy, it's usually just a diversion and a distraction. They don't want to talk about their own sins or repent of them or deal with them. So they like to flip it back on the person who's telling them the truth. So if we find ourselves in a position where we're telling someone about Jesus and they're accusing us or accusing the church of hypocrisy, we should just step over the slander and continue to boldly and faithfully tell the truth about sin and about Jesus. Peter charges the crowd with having denied the Holy One and the just. Again, the very same sin he had done. But he reminds them of how they asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be given to them instead and killed the Prince of Life. There's something of an irony there, a contrast there. You had the Prince of Life, the Giver of Life, the God of Life in your midst, and you chose a man of death and violence instead. But then, just as he did in the Pentecost sermon, Peter testifies that Jesus had been raised from the dead and that he and John were witnesses of this. Remember from John also that that Resurrection Sunday, Peter and John had a foot race to that tomb and first saw it, that it was empty. John believed immediately. Peter left marveling that several times they would see and meet with the risen Christ and he would restore Peter after his denials. So again, Peter's not someone who never sinned in this way, but he knows that his sins have been forgiven and that these people also need the same. But in having very quickly and briefly presented Jesus to the crowd, he then turns to the relevance of this miracle. This brings us to our next point. After the cure and the charge, we come to the call in verses 16 through 26. So Peter continues, And his name, through faith in his name, so that being Jesus' name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So this man didn't just receive working feet and legs, he received saving faith. 
You receive new life and new birth, something even greater than the physical healing that was but a mere picture of that. But Peter now turns his attention to the crowd. Note that he does not dwell long on the miracle, its means and mode and legitimacy. The miracle is not for its own sake, but it is a means so that the law and the gospel might be preached, and so they shall be preached. Now in verse 17, Peter attributes the Jews' sins against Jesus, by which they delivered him over to death, to ignorance. So he's not exactly being polite or winsome in a modern sense. He is being charitable insofar as he grants that they did not know what they were doing, or at least some of them did not know what they were doing. Now it's important to think about this category of sins of ignorance, sins done without intent. There are many sins that can become popular, widespread in a society, accepted in a society, and most people just don't even realize it at all. I'm a bit loath to bring up this example, but we all know what day it is. We know this afternoon there will be a very large event of which, if TV ratings are to be believed, at least a third of the country is going to gather around and watch an event that involves much unnecessary work and worldliness and recreation, the sort of thing that, as we confess about the Lord's Day, has no place but probably the most popular single event in our culture of a year. You know, we confess these things, we read the Ten Commandments, we go through our catechisms, and these are all good things, but the reality hits the ground. And so on matters like the Lord's Day, they hit the ground on things like this. But perhaps you're thinking of this and you're like, well, I never knew that, I never realized that, I never put that together. Well, I can relate. I'm not saying this is someone who's never had my part in it. I used to be a huge fan of sports of all kinds and professional sports of all kinds. At my college, there would be a contest each year who could name the most players on the teams in the big game, and I won it every year because I watched every game and I knew every player on every team. Not every, but most. But the times of ignorance are over. It's time to repent. It is time to turn to Christ, to turn away from sins, even the popular sins, even the culturally pressing sins, not just this widespread profaning of the Lord's Day, but there's other things. There's the LGBT sins. I mentioned some of those earlier and how those have even infiltrated the church. And so many other sins that we probably don't even think about and are still ignorant of. The times of ignorance are over. The time to repent has come. And so, it is time for this once ignorant crowd to which Peter preaches to repent of their pressing sins, their denial of Christ, their forsaking of Christ for a murderer. All that was prophesied about the Christ, the Messiah to who the Jews looked, had now come to pass. They missed it because Satan had blinded their hearts and minds, as Peter said. And even this was a means that God used for Christ to accomplish his predestined purposes to suffer for the sins and redemption of his people. But again, 
the times of ignorance are over. And so in verse 19, Peter calls them to repent and be converted. I talked about repentance last time, how it is not merely an acknowledgement of sin, but a breaking with it. He adds to this another imperative, the New King James, which I read from, translates it as be converted. It very literally means turn around or return. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge your guilt and cease from them. And turn from the course of sin and death on which you have been. If you know you're engaging in these sins, even these culturally acceptable and popular sins, you have to put them away and you have to be willing to bear the price of whatever that may be. I've had to do it. We all have to do it. It's part of the cost of discipleship. Do not persist in the ignorance by which you scorned and crucified the Son of God. The crowd that day had directly crucified the Son of God, but all of our sins were sins for which Christ died. All of our sins held Him there until it was accomplished, as the hymn says. We are just as guilty as this crowd that Peter was preaching to is, but the times of ignorance are over. It is time to repent. So for this crowd, they thought that they continued to worship God by their Judaism, even though Judaism had become a religion of works and self-righteousness. But they did not worship God by that, for God was to be worshipped in Christ alone, and Peter was exhorting these people to turn back to their God. What was promised to those who would repent in verse 19 is that their sins would be blotted out. Times of refreshing would come. Jesus washes away sins. He will bring new birth, new life, all things being made new for those who repent. And then also Christ will come, Peter says. Now this is ultimately in view of Christ's return at the end of the age, but that's not all it's talking about. To those who would repent... Christ comes to them right then and there and lives with them and dwells in them by His Holy Spirit until all things are restored, until the end of this age when sin and death are no more, when Christ finally returns. Peter then proclaims that Jesus was the prophet who Moses foresaw and prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.15. Now that was a verse that this Jewish audience would have known very well was a verse that fueled a lot of their messianic expectations. Well, Jesus was that prophet and there was no other. And to miss him was to miss life and to be destroyed from among God's people. All the other prophets since continued to prophesy of Christ and what they've prophesied has been fulfilled as Christ has come. So Peter puts before these Jews, the sons of the prophets, the sons of the covenant with Abraham, their need to repent, their need to believe in Jesus, to trust in Him alone, that they might be forgiven of their sins. While the break hasn't yet been made clean, salvation would be no longer found in the marks and ceremonies of Judaism, or in anyone or anywhere else, salvation is in Christ alone. 
And this kind of preaching to this Jewish crowd at the temple against their pressing and relevant and recent sins is going to get some unwanted attention. After the cure, the charge, and the call, we come to the conflict, which we see in the first four verses of chapter 4. So Peter is in the crowd in the temple preaching the name of Jesus and repentance and salvation in him alone. Who stands to lose from that? Who stands to be most offended from that? Well, how about Jesus' old friends, the priests, the leaders of the Jews, the scribes and Pharisees, and we even see here particularly the Sadducees, all these religious leaders of the Jews, the very ones who carried out that murderous plot against Jesus. And so in verse 1, we see that they converge on Peter. They are disturbed for two reasons. First, they are disturbed that Peter and John are teaching the people. It's something of a positional or credentialist concern. You can't teach the people. That's our job. Of course, they were false teachers. They did not know the scriptures and the power of God. They denied their Messiah. If they would teach the truth from their positions, that would be one thing, but they don't. And so God raised up others in their place. But then there is a second charge, this preaching of the resurrection. This is why the Sadducees are particularly important and worth mentioning here, because the Sadducees were a sect of Judaism, of which there were several, and one of the Sadducees' distinctives was that they denied the resurrection from the dead. That's why they're sad, you see. Sorry. Had, had to. They're so offended about this denial of the resurrection, in fact, that they, they essentially get the police. They get the captain of the temple and the temple guard on their side, and they have Peter and John arrested and thrown into jail overnight, where they face, and then they'll face trial, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next time. But by the time Peter and John were taken away, it was far too late. For we learn that many of those in that crowd had heard and believed. There's some dispute, there's some lack of clarity in the original text as to whether it says that 5,000 were added that day or the total number came to be 5,000. So I read the New King James, it takes it as the 5,000 is cumulative. It's not exactly clear from the Greek, but however you take it, somewhere between 2,000 and 5,000 people heard Peter's message, were convicted by the Holy Spirit, repented of their sins, and were brought to faith in Christ that day. All through Peter's rather impolite acts. So impolite, they in fact land him in jail. What this shows us is the power of God's word, the power of God's truth, even the uncomfortable and unpopular parts of it. God's word is a sharp sword. It is more powerful than the ignorance and political machinations and the objections and social conventions of men. The law delivered convicts, and the gospel delivered faithfully and boldly is the power of God to salvation to any who would believe, Jews and Gentiles alike. Perhaps you hear and understand this word of the gospel for the first time today. The call to that crowd is the same to you. 
whatever your sins of the past, whatever you've done with Jesus before, the call now is to repent of your sins and believe in Christ, to put away the ignorance, to receive and rest upon him as he is offered in the gospel. Everything Peter said that day was true. Jesus suffered and died, was raised from the dead, and all of this by the purpose and predestination of God so that he might save his people from their sins. There is salvation and life in no one else. Not any other gods, not any other people, not any other thing. Salvation is in Christ alone. Repent and trust in him. For those who are in Christ today, we are called to be bold, to be strong in the face of opposition and resistance from the world. We may suffer for it. Peter and John went to jail. We might end up in jail the way things are going in this world if we continue to be faithful to Christ. If we continue to stand on the truth of God's word that God created us and that he has prescribed a moral law that binds all men in all times and that Jesus lived and died and was raised and salvation is found in no other name. We might suffer. We might receive the rejection and the ostracism of culture. We should keep in our hearts and minds something that Peter himself once said to Jesus. You might remember it from John. To where else will we go? You have the words of life. Whatever the world can do to us, however the world may hate us or reject us, however we have to turn on culture and run counter to culture, Christ is with us and he is for us and in him alone is salvation and we can rest and hope and trust in him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. Father, we recognize that we have sinned against you by our thoughts and our words and our deeds, whether deliberately or even in ignorance. We know that sin is so ever-present around us and before us that we may not even know the depths of our sin. In fact, almost certainly we cannot know the full depths of our sin. And yet we thank you that in Christ salvation has come, that it has been proclaimed to us that you have seen fit by your sovereign will to deliver us from our sins and misery. And I pray that in light of that, we would live lives of thanksgiving and gratitude And that also, because of that gratitude, we would desire that others might hear and know and repent and believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.